I invite you to turn in First Peter to verses to chapter five, verses one through four. First Peter five, one through four. I've titled this an exhortation to shepherds. So I've been preaching at you all for the last two years. Now I get to preach to myself and a man who isn't here right now. So that makes the dynamics a little interesting. But this is good because people sometimes need to be reminded of their job description. And it's good for you all to know what it is that we do and rather what we're supposed to be doing. Now, Peter understands, as we've demonstrated time and again, that there is no question if Christians are going to suffer, right? It's, it's not a matter of if, but when. And just to illustrate this, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a Christian bakery in Oregon that was uh, sued 140 or 150,000 some odd dollars because of their, uh, they were trying to run their business according to their Christian conviction. A missionary friend of mine was recently uh, arrested in Ohio because he was preaching outside of an abortuary, and he was charged with civil uh, civil misconduct because the things that he said were discouraging and depressing to the ears of those inside the clinic. Just recently, in Erie County of Indiana, legislator voted to criminalize Christian counseling. And if, if, there, if you don't know what, that, what Christian counseling is, what it essentially means is identifying certain sinful behaviors that the world says is natural and explainable, but the Bible says is sin. It is now hate speech and a crime to say that is wrong in God's eyes. You need to repent of it. And the good news is, is that Jesus Christ bled and died for sins such as those. That is now considered hate speech. So, as we've said before, suffering is coming. In some regards, it has already come, and it had already come to Peter's audience. And we've addressed how Christians and how the church is to respond when we're suffering. Today, we're looking at what are the pastors supposed to be doing. And the, que- the question is, is when the heat is on... What are pastors to do? Peter tells us in this text that they need to be doing their job. When the heat is on, pastors need to be doing their job. So in verse 1, he gives, us the, he gives me and Pastor Carl and all elders the mandate to shepherd. And pastors need to be doing their job in the right way. So in verses 2 to 3, he tells us the manner in which elders are to carry out their charge. And furthermore, pastors also need to be doing it for the right reason. So in verse 4, we get the motive for the pastor's task. We're given the mandate, what are the elders to do, the manner, how are elders to do it, and the motive, why are elders to do it. So let's read what Pastor Peter has to say in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd 
the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right, so the mandate, the manner, and the motive. Let's look first at the mandate for shepherding. Verse 1. As we've said, suffering regularly comes up upon God's people, and this is pastors, leaders are no exception. So Peter says to the elders, I exhort you. Let's, let's skip the last half of verse one and, and, and go to verse two, because I want you to see I want you to see the, ver, the, 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 the noun, the verb, and the direct object, the, the components that make a basic unit of thought. I want you to see that in as simplest terms as possible. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, skip down to verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the mandate. The elders of the church are to shepherd God's people. And that's the charge that here at SVBC that Pastor Carl and I both possess. Shepherd the flock of God among you, And there is a whole lot to be said here. First, notice that Peter addresses the elders. Now this passage, along with several other passages in the New Testament, where Paul is addressing the elders directly or, or speaking of them in his epistle, tell us something very, very important about church government. The way that, that God intended for the church to be governed, and that is through a plurality of Elders, plurality, meaning more than one. And that is to say that God has intended for a group, or better yet, a team of biblically qualified elders to function as the governing, leading, and teaching body in any church. The elders in the New Testament church were the spiritually qualified leaders who bore the responsibility of of leading and governing, and overseeing, and teaching, and preaching, and instructing, and and counseling, and exhorting, and comforting, and encouraging. And, and, And if there's anything else that I've missed, to sum it all up, in short, it's to minister to the church. The elders were the pastors. 1 Timothy 5.17 identifies them as those who rule and work hard at preaching and teaching. Titus 1.5 says that elders were those who led every church in every city. Now, today we have, we have different words like elder and, and bishop and pastor. Who's, who's heard those words you, uh, used in different settings? Pastor, elder. You know, you, you may have the pastor here, but over here you have the elders and Perhaps somewhere in in the next city over uh, is the bishop. And and in most often case, these are signifying different people. But the Bible, get this, the Bible depicts them all as the same office, as one person. Does that come come as a surprise to anybody? Good. They are the same person. They're... 
what they are are different words that emphasize or flesh out the different features of the job, but they all apply to elders, and they all, guess, guess what, they all appear in this passage. Now, the noun elder, which is the word that we've already uh, come up with so far, speaks to a man's spiritual maturity and the qualifications he's to have if he's to be in his office. If you would like to read up on the qualifications for elders, turn, you can uh, make a note. You can read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. For, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into that, but you can read that on your, on your own. Those are the qualifications and, uh, and speak of the spiritual maturity elders were supposed to have. Uh, and then the verb that we see in verse 2, shepherd, uh, comes from uh, that word became the word pastor. And you can see it, in, you know, pasture and pastor sound an awful lot alike, don't they? And this word primarily concerns itself with the elders' task of feeding the people through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And so that's what it's primarily concerned with, but it assumes, uh, it carries with it a whole smorgasbord of other functions and responsibilities. So they're pr- the shepherd is primarily concerned with feeding his flock, but there's a whole lot that he does from sunup to sundown. And then there's another verb that we get in verse 2. It, fo- it follows shepherd. It's exercising oversight. And the form of that word is, is the word that became the word bishop. And it literally means an overseer or a supervisor. And that's the person who, who has, he, he has the big picture. He has the scope of it all. And he's making sure that things are as they ought to be. And, and he's also held accountable if they're not, right? I mean, isn't the supervisor always the one uh, who's in trouble if, they, if something's wrong. And what's interesting is by the end of the second century, there, had, there was this tradition that had arose where the premier elder was, was elevated to this uh, status where he alone was considered the authority of the church. And the, the label bishop was slapped onto him. And really from, from the end of the second century on, you had one bishop in the church and then all the other leaders in the church, you know, less impressive, less, less significant, less authoritative, they, they kept the moniker elder. And, and uh, the word is uh, presbyteros or presbyter. So tradition developed that you have the bishop on top and he's supported by all these underling elders. But the, the, t- the two takeaways from this observation is, one, the biblical elder is one who pastors and has oversight over the church. They're all the same person. The other takeaway is that churches were intended by God to be pastored and governed by a plurality of elders. If the norm had been for for one solitary pastor to be shepherding each church Peter is writing to, how would Peter have started off verse 1? To the elder among you. To the one guy, to the, to the one elder in your midst, I exhort. Now, he, what, what does he say? To the elders among you. He, he's assuming a plurality of eldership. And in his book on biblical eldership, Alexander Strzok, at the beginning of almost every single chapter, he points out in each text that he's 
digging into to, to arrive at a biblical understanding of what the of what the pastor is, he makes the argument that based on how the word is used and comes up in the Bible, it's always assumed a plurality of elders are present in each church. The only time that a that a single man is ever addressed is when is when uh, a name is given, and 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 the reader or the writer obviously has one person that he's addressing, such as Diotrephes in Second John. But a plurality of elders is the normal structure of church leadership, and you may be asking, Aaron, why are you spending time on this? Why is this important? Well, there are many churches today that have neglected this biblical precept and instead they've modeled church governance after the world and they've implemented uh, 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 an, uh, a model after empires or corporations so that there really is less and less of a distinction between the church and the world. And in that model you have one man at the top who's lording his authority down on everyone underneath him. And rather than that, instead, God has designed a plurality model to better the church. Strock points out that a plurality of elders allows for a balance between the strengths and weaknesses between elders. That balance is good. One man's strength will complement another man's weakness. I've, I've heard it said that when, when, uh, when you're by yourself, your weaknesses can often be like halitosis. It's apparent to everybody else except for the one person who desperately needs to be told something. So, in a, uh, it, 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 uh, plurality balances the weaknesses and the strengths between the elders. It also uh, allows for the ministerial load of the church to be distributed so that no one elder is overwhelmed or, or burned out. Uh, John MacArthur adds that a plurality of elders serves to prevent the disruption that will inevitably occur when, uh, when, when one man as the sole leader of the church neglects or forgets or for whatever reason doesn't train or develop, develop, develop fellow elders before he uh, moves on, uh, steps down, retires, or shall we say is promoted. Uh, both men point out that a plurality provides much-needed accountability and support that lone pastors almost never get. So, so what? What do we do with this? Well, I hope you see the advantage to a plurality of elders in this church and that you would thank the Lord that he has seen fit to provide a plurality of elders here. And I would also hope that you would appreciate the strengths and weaknesses and the balance between your elders and that you would submit to both of your elders and be praying for both of your elders. Carl and I are a team here for your sake. And so to these men, to, to me and to Carl, Peter says, I exhort you to shepherd the flock of God among you. No, he says, "I exhort you." That that that's a good word. It it means to call to call alongside, to admonish, to to strongly urge or compel someone in a in a particular direction. Often with a with a sense of empathy or or sympathy. There's often effort. There's often personal attachment 
uh, in the motivation when you're exhorting someone. And you, you don't exhort someone, you, you don't exhort all the time because then you devalue it. You, you don't, uh, a wife may not, uh, you, you shouldn't exhort your husband to take out the garbage or, or do the, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that does happen. Maybe you do have to exhort. But there, there, there's weight. There's absolute weight to this exhortation. It's the, and this is a great word, it's the verbal form of the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit when he would come alongside and he would come as the comforter of his disciples. Now, to demonstrate that weight, to demonstrate the, the empathy that Peter is bringing along in his exhortation, he, he grounds his exhortation with, with three things. The three features accompany his exhortation. One is that he exhorts them as their fellow. He exhorts the elders in the churches as their fellow, as their fellow elder. Peter is one of them. Now, notice that Peter doesn't instinctively resort to touting his badge or his authority. He doesn't, he doesn't instinctively pull rank. We, we've all worked with people who, at the first sign of, of an obstacle or of difficulty, they pull rank. That, those are not enjoyable people to work with. And so that's not what he does at first. He appeals as a fellow pastor who can identify with the hardships, with the highs and lows and the temptations of ministering. He, he's been through the heights, he's been through the valleys, and he can sympathize with pastors. And that sympathy comes out in his exhortation as a fellow elder. And can, we can see that when, 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 when you're given a difficult task, doesn't it come, a, come across a little easier when you know the person can sympathize with you? I, I've heard of a, a, I heard of a parent who had a child who had to get a shot, and the, ch- the child was terrified. And so the parent lovingly rolled up his sleeve and asked the doctor to give him a shot too to help his, to help his or her little one go through that ordeal. That's, that's what it's like to exhort as a fellow. You can sympathize. And Peter, as a pastor, is appealing to the elders of these churches. That's the first thing he does. And then he also appeals as an authority. Notice he says, not only as a fellow elder, but he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, we know that Peter saw the sufferings of Jesus Christ through his three-year ministry, and especially when he was illegally arrested and tried, beaten, mocked, and executed. You know what else Peter saw? The empty tomb. And because he, had saw, because he had seen these things, he was commissioned. He was appointed and sent out as one of Jesus' witnesses. That's, it's the same word, witness. Uh, it was a technical word that describes someone who saw something. They have the authority to verify that something happened because they saw it. And they are testifying to it. They are giving credence to it at at. At, for the sake of, uh, at the cost of their own reputation if they're wrong. And Jesus uses this word and applies it to Peter and to the, to the whole 12 in Luke 24, 47 to 48. Uh, Luke writes, this is written 
These are the words of Jesus. This is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in, in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses. You have seen what happened to me. You have seen that I am alive. Now go and proclaim it. Testify. Peter was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And so as one commissioned, as an apostle, as one of the twelve who preached the gospel that founded these churches, Peter exhorts pastors to shepherd. So as, as a fellow as an authority, and also as an anticipator of reward. That's the third one. Peter exhorts elders to shepherd. Notice also, he is a, also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. A partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, at the return of Christ, this is one of the basic tenets of of what we believe, that all believers will be rewarded for their faithfulness and service to Christ and His church. And this also includes pastors for faithfully and diligently handling their charge. Peter is saying, in effect, hey, I too am going to receive that glory. I'm going to get some of that too. And remember that up on the mount in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, what did Peter see up on that mountain? He saw the glory of the transfigured Christ. And the text tells us that he, he was dumbfounded. What's dumbfounded? Well, I've heard it said it's, it's when you say something and what you say is found out to be rather dumb. And he was dumbfounded. He, he, the text says he didn't know what he was saying. He was so amazed and in awe and astounded by what he saw, by, by seeing the glory of Christ. And so he, he appeals to that glorious, weighty, good reward that awaits pastors who are faithful. And so as a fellow elder, and as an authority figure, and as an anticipator of the glory of Jesus Christ, Peter says to, to me and to Carl, shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Now the 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 verb here, this is a to shepherd, this is this is a verbal form of the word that became pastor. And it primarily involves feeding. And it encompasses a whole lot of other tasks, but it primarily encompasses and is concerns itself with feeding the sheep. The shepherds, they revolved around and centered around the important job of feeding and watering his flock because Amazon uh, Fresh hadn't been invented in the first century and you couldn't get uh, fresh greens delivered to your stable. So you had to go out and find them.
and, and, and along with that, you had to make sure that you had to lead them there and you had to take care of them and you had to ensure their safety and then make sure at the end of the day that every single one is accounted for. Now, I, can, I think I can make an argument for the centrality of this in three ways. One is in John 21, 15 to 17. This is where Peter... Now, has anyone ever said something really, really dumb before? I have. I have. Has anyone ever done something so um, so dumb that you're just wondering what's going to happen because of this? There are going to be consequences, aren't there? Yeah. I can identify with you. Peter was a man who sometimes said dumb things. And you remember he, uh, he said, oh, Jesus, I, I'll, I would never leave you. I will stand with you to the very, very end. You remember him promising that, vowing that, um, uh, almost swearing that? Did he do that? No. And so in John 21, 15 to 17, you know, this, this is after the resurrection. Jesus has reappeared. And there's Peter kind of wondering... You know, remembering he made that incredible promise, that vow, and he he didn't do so good. So there he is, just kind of wondering what what happens now. What do I what do I do now? Well, um, commentators typically label this area the the reinstatement or the restoring of Peter, because Jesus is affirming Peter as a pastor in the church, and he says three times what Peter is to do. Remember, he asks, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. And he asks him a second time, Jesus, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus, Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, then shepherd my flock. And then the third time he asks him and Jesus says, okay, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Jesus says, feed Shepherd, which can be tend, and then feed again. Two, two out of those three words are what? Feed. Uh, if you turn to the shepherd's psalm, which, which psalm is that? Pop quiz. Psalm 23, good job. 100 points to, to, to Don. Uh, if you turn to, uh, if, if you read Psalm 23, verse 2, he leads me to the green pastures. He leads me behind the still waters. So really early in the psalm, the shepherd, the good shepherd, he is feeding and watering the flock. But then uh, after, after the restoring of souls and um, uh, in verse 4, the shepherd leads the sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. And at that point, I just stop and wonder and go, what, wouldn't you find a different valley to take your sheep through? I mean, why go through this valley of the shadow of death? I would find another route. That just doesn't sound like the place that I want to be at 11 o'clock in the morning. But why does he go through the valley of the shadow of death? Because if you, when you, verse 4 is the route to verse 5, which is where the sheep find the table that the shepherd has prepared for them. There is more feeding to be done in the day in, in, in the shepherd's day. You fed him in the morning and you fed him in the afternoon. There, twice in the psalm, 
there is feeding and providing nourishment for the sheep. Also in 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2, 2 Timothy being uh, often labeled as Paul's final letter to his beloved son. In chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he says, and, and generally, when, when you know that your time is running out, you're going to make sure that your words are well chosen. You're going to make it count, right? Listen to what he says. One of the last exhortations he gives to Timothy, his son in the faith. I solemnly charge you. That, that's the same idea as exhorting. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Of all the things he could tell Timothy to do, he tells him to preach the word. Be concerned with preaching. This doesn't mean to neglect the other responsibilities of the pastor, but prioritize preaching the word. Reprove, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But Timothy, if you're not, if you're going to do one thing, preach the word. The preaching and the explaining of the word of God is the means by which the gospel goes out and takes roots in the hearts of men, and in the hearts of women, and even in the hearts of little children. The teaching of the Word of God is the means by which we all grow up into maturity in Christ. And the exhortation of the Word of God is the means by which my faith and your faith is refined and strengthened. Teaching and preaching is the priority, and, it, and, and everything the elders do in the church ought to be grounded in, rooted in, supporting, or extending from the pulpit. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God is central. It is vitally essential to the function of the elder. And that's why in the short time that we assemble on Sunday, Carl and I have intentional thought. We put effort, we put prayer, we put thought as to how are we going to use these precious minutes that we have with you? You know, there's a time for pastors to be funny. There's a time for pastors to be real and perhaps even to be entertaining. And, and there's perhaps a time for socializing and for recreation with the body. But if a pastor neglects to faithfully and regularly expound the Bible and make it known to his congregation and to build them up in it, then he has failed in his task. If he has failed, if he has neglected to do that, he has failed in his task. So elders are to shepherd. They are to feed and teach God's people. And, and, and how are they to do so? How do they carry out their mandate? Well, we see the manner of shepherding in verses 2 and 3. Peter says, to shepherd, exercising oversight. Now, as I said earlier, shepherding is not limited to feeding. And, and here, Peter gives us another word that describes the job of the elders, and that is overseeing. Shepherds needed to be aware of their flock and of their surroundings at the same time, and so they would quite often 
find a strategic area uh, or location, you know, such as a hill or a, or a rock or maybe even a small tree, and they would climb up in it and, and so that they would be at a high point so that they could scope out the scene. And that's why the word uh, is uh, means to, to see, to have vision, to scope. The word is episkopos, episkopos. That's the word that became bishop. So pastors need to be in a place where they can see and assess and, and look at and scope out the church. And what this means is that pastors can't hide away in their offices or in their studies, reading and studying, pop out, give a 30-minute sermon, and then pop back, uh, retreat back to their lair for the week. That, that, that pastors can't do that. They need to have some presence among the congregation. They need to be in their lives so as to see, so as to scope, so as to assess the flock and their well-being, so as to identify concerns. To, uh, we are to know where the church is to go. We are to lead them there, and we are to ensure the safety of the flock as we go there. That's exercising oversight. And Carl and I make it a point to be available when you have questions, when you have needs, when you have concerns and burdens. And we, 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 we encourage you to call us, to reach out to us. And when, when that doesn't happen, sooner or later, we're going to be reaching out to you because there has to be a connection. And I, I, hope, I hope you don't see that it's, it's that much of a stretch to see that oversight and shepherding can't occur when we see you in 45 minutes to an hour, once, twice, maybe three, maybe four times a month. Rather, this oversight occurs through regularly assembling together, through visitations, through meals together, through studies at the church, and through studies at houses and over cups of coffee. And if necessary, through through phone calls and email and text, but... There needs to be a personal, regular connection between pastor and flock. And because of this concern, I I think it's appropriate to throw out a plug for church membership. Because for someone who visits here, For someone who visits here, it's difficult to be kept, to try to shepherd someone, to try to have oversight, and to speak into someone's life with the authority of the Scripture when we're being held back at arm's length or or when we don't see you. You may say, uh, yeah, but uh, church membership isn't presented in the Bible. Yeah, well, back, back in the first century, you only had one church in each city. So if you didn't go to that church, your options were pretty limited. To, uh, the, the, the apostles would have been blown away at the, at, to hear that in 2,000 years, uh, people would flippantly leave one church and go to the next church just down the road because they say something, because there they can get their ears tickled. So I would, cons- I would exhort you, lovingly exhort you, that if you've been riding the fence with the, uh, as to the issue of church membership, consider it. Consider it because neither side in this relationship benefits from having 
the relationship between elder and congregant fuzzy. When that relationship is fuzzy, it doesn't help anybody. This text reminds me and it tells you that elders are accountable for your souls. And church membership is a formal way to declare to me that I have responsibility for you. That is the purpose and intent of church membership. It, it makes it very, very clear who is responsible for who. Okay, plug done. Now, because of this responsibility to oversee, to govern, to supervise, guard, to lead, one, one, uh, one usage of the word is actually translated rule, but we'll see very quickly, it doesn't, it doesn't mean rule. Peter is quick to address the manner in which shepherding and, and oversight is to be conducted, and he provides three contrasts, three contrasts. Three times Peter tells us how not to shepherd, and each time he follows up with a positive. For each do, there is a. For each don't, there is a do. First, the first contrast is is not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Elders are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And that is to say that pastors and elders are to willfully apply their energies and their efforts into their ministry. Pastors and elders should willingly and volitionally apply and exercise their energies into their ministries. And they should not have to be reminded of their duties to take care of, to minister to, to encourage, to counsel and comfort and strengthen the church. When pastors have to be reminded to do that, there's a problem. Sure, they are to study hard, to diligently exegete, to faithfully exposit the scripture, to counsel, to teach, to exhort, to correct, to rebuke, to discern the health of the church, to facilitate and meet the needs of the body and to guide her with respect to the, to the circumstances and the challenges and opportunities that each church and each body and each ministry presents, sure, pastors are supposed to do all that. But the thing that moves, the, things that, the thing that pushes the elder to do all that, it shouldn't be their pay, it shouldn't be the fear of man, and it shouldn't be the concern that, that they're going to lose something of their reputation. All of those are external compulsions. That is an outside force forcing a man to do what he really doesn't want to, what he doesn't have the unction to do inside. Rather, Peter says, pastors should have an inner desire to put their hand to the plow and to go to work. A pastor pastors, not because anyone makes him do it, but because he has a voluntary, self driven desire to pastor and that is what is rotating the gears if you could if you could turn a pastor around and unscrew the screws and open it up and see the gears turning that's what's moving the gears he recognizes that that's god's will for him the second 
manner that is to accompany or that is to come with oversight is not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Elders are to shepherd and and exercise their oversight not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, sordid gain, that's a fancy, kind of an old, old, older word. We don't use sordid. We, we say sorta, but not sordid gain anymore. This, this goes beyond being motivated by money. It, it goes beyond that, and it really it speaks to the shameful acquisition of it. There, there, there's, some, there's some really bad nuance, some bad baggage that comes with, with something that's sordid. And, and this is when a pastor abuses his position and power, and he, he accumulates and he builds up wealth for himself. He builds up his own empire at the expense of those that he himself is supposed to be building up. So rather than build up the church, he has the church build him up. That is sordid gain. And stealing the sheep's money or acquiring it in, in, in any dishonest, integrity-deprived way is what marks false teachers and false shepherds. And it ought to never, ever mark the biblical elder. That goes for money, and that goes for any resource. That goes for your time. That goes for your energy. That goes with anything that you contribute, anything that you give in service and support of the church. Rather than anticipate what the church can do for the elder, the biblical elder rolls up his sleeves to do for the church. And because his labor benefits, supports, and protects the church, the biblical elder rejoices at the opportunity even if it costs him something, even if it's something beneath him, even if it's something that humiliates him. And this attitude agrees with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.15, where he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And a third quality that's to mark the elder's shepherding, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to the examples to the flock. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Do you remember in Matthew 20, 25 to 28, where Jesus set the standard for leadership? He says, you know, speaking to his disciples, he says, you, by the way, the disciples from time to time, they had squabbles about who among them was the greatest and you know, who, who among them was chief, right? That happened a couple times. They're, they're people just like, just like us. Jesus says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord, that's the same word, uh, it means to, to domineer, to have power come down on someone else. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. 
Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your, depending on your translation, servant or slave. It's the same word. Just as. Now, where does Jesus get this principle from? He doesn't just pull it out of the air. He's borrowing this principle from his own messianic purpose. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. As the, exa- as the ultimate ex- expression of service. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Do you? Do you want to be useful and valued in the eyes of the king? Then be servants. Be Slaves unto one another. Do not be so puffed up in your own importance or so distracted by your circumstances that you're either unable or you're unwilling to serve one another. And this is, this is precisely the attitude that, that has dominated chapters 2, 3, and 4 of this letter. And that's the, that's the attitude of humble submission and humble harmony in the church. And the call for elders is rather than dominate those who are entrusted to them, rather than demand to be served when they're hurting, biblical elders are expected to be the models of this attitude of humble harmony. And there ought not be any discrepancy between the, between the, the, the talk and the walk of a pastor. You should be able to look into our lives, our conduct, our behavior, our speech, and see that we are modeling what we, what, pa- what Pastor Carl and I are exhorting the church to embrace. The what, the mandate to shepherd. The how, the manner of willingness, eagerness, and humility. Then we see the motive of shepherding, the why. Why should elders shepherd this way? Peter tells us in verse 4, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What motive does the elder have in doing his job the way that God desires for him to do so? Because God will hold him accountable, that's why. God will hold me and Carl accountable. And there are passages that talk about both the positive and the negative recompense, or you could say reward and consequence for teachers that warn that there is a greater accountability for teachers and leaders, which is why James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we have a greater accountability. But here, Peter, Peter's, Peter's positive. Peter's a little more positive than James, and he only mentions the positive perhaps because he's anticipating faithfulness on part of these elders. Those who are faithful to shepherd and oversee the church with eagerness and humility will, Peter says, receive the unfading crown of glory from Jesus Christ himself. Now, what was going on at at, at this time in the old world were were the uh, Olympic and the Isthmian Games and those, uh, just like 
our, our games today. Those who won got prizes. We, we get gold medals. They got uh, uh, either medal or sometimes organic laurels or wreaths or crowns. And the me- if it was metal, it would inevitably rust and fade and decay. If it was, if it was made out of a, of a laurel, if it was made out of a wreath and had flowers and was organic, it would eventually, it would much more quickly wilt and die. And they would, in time, be useless. But Peter says that we will get the unfading crown of glory. That word for unfading, Peter uses a word picture. He, he refers to the amaranth flower, which allegedly never withers, which in Palestine is quite amazing because everything withers. If stones could wither, they would wither. It's so dry and over there. But like the amaranth flower that doesn't fade at all throughout the year and remains a beautiful green, the glory that we have, that we will get, and the, and the reward that faithful pastors will get will be eternal and unending. Shepherding is a serious sober responsibility. As we've said, elders are accountable for our ministry. There are times where every minister wonders what it what would have been like if I had chose something else? What would it what would it have been like if I took a left back in Albuquerque? It's tough and sometimes feels like for every step we've gained we've lost two. Not being said the steps gained are worth it, amen. There is joy in it, especially when we survey the church and we see we see the church growing in biblical understanding. When we see your faith flowering. And we see the maturing of Christ's likeness. That is a joy, and that is what we see. Nevertheless, still pray for us because we need it. Let's pray.